Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Do you feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there's something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. My favorite meal that you can get right now is the chili chili bang bang chicken. Go to the link in the description to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. It's the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you back to episode number 72, where today we have another very exciting history of physics episode. Let's go. Yeah, very, very exciting stuff. Um, One of my favorite episodes to record. For sure. It yeah. teaches us so much about well, the history of physics and what some of these individuals, you know, contributed to society. Mm -hmm. But this particular episode, we have one of the individuals requested quite a lot, Sir Alan Turing. Let's go. So that's going to be cool. Let's go. So that's going to be cool. I'm very excited about this one. Yeah. And um, I'm going to be, well, I guess we're both going to be presenting. But the person that I chose, Max Planck, one of my favorite physicists, best character arcs in the history of physics that there is um just because you know we love quantum mechanics here on the podcast and mm -hmm. max planck you know he's not he's not really a protagonist in the story of quantum mechanics but he's just that one that one figure that caused the entire the entirety of physics to just melt down right before his eyes mm -hmm. and so you know we had to bring him on the history of physics today yeah i mean i think max planck is a big contributor right to mm -hmm. what what we understand about radiation right yeah. a lot about light a lot about a lot of that stuff so also i think i said sir alan Turing. i thought about it i don't think he's a sir so okay. he because he is he is and uh, like that that obe like the order of the british show he has been like awarded by the queen i believe like posthumously like long long after but uh i don't think it was sir so i misspoke for that but is yeah he doctor? podcast news what's up is he a doctor alan turing well mathematician i'm assuming yeah phd of course from princeton yeah, what am i saying of course of course what there am i saying go. so a doctor of course but uh sir i'm not quite sure mm -hmm. right sir i'm not quite sure let's get Anyways. into the news for followers we're sitting at 11.7 technically very close to 11.8 thousand spotify followers mm -hmm. so get us to that 12 for those of you listening on spotify just just go ahead and click that follow button you know why not and we also just hit 1000 subscribers on youtube that so was thank big. you that thank was you big. very much yep. everybody if you're listening to this right now and you want to check out the video version make sure mm -hmm. to go on youtube make sure to leave a subscribe because you know, we're trying to get to, uh, we're trying to, let's say we're trying to match 
our Spotify followers. Oh, so that, big, you know, big who, goals. Who, yeah. who is the who's the stronger platform, mm-hmm. YouTube or Spotify? Who's the stronger Rise platform? Up. I like that. Are the listeners stronger or are the viewers stronger? Let's see it, you guys. Very exciting stuff. And lastly, on the news section, we have 180,000 downloads. 20 more thousand. How, how often do we... So for the last 30 days, we got 25,000. So in about a month, we're hitting 200. Wow. wow. Nice. Wow. Nice. Nice. Thank you to everyone who continues to, you know, download. And obviously, uh, this would not be YouTube. This would only be our listeners. So this is also a battle kind of counted in there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for sure. Thank you to everyone. Anyways, to listen. anyways, if you want to be mentioned on the podcast, make sure to leave a comment under this YouTube video and you might get selected mm-hmm. to be next week's comment of the week. But for the time being, this week's comment of the week comes from Louisa. She says, I gotta say, guys, these last weeks, I've been having a blast listening to you both talk about math and physics. The quarantine has separated us physically from others and listening to your discussions makes me feel at home in parentheses college. I'm always oh, happy. Was it the one that was made like this? Yeah. Like, recently? yeah I love this one. Today. I know I read it. I felt so nice. <laughs> so yeah. Well, yeah. thank you very much for your comment. Very nice words. Very kind words. There are also some other very good comments, but you know, for sure. we, we have to pick one. And uh, yeah. yeah. So if you want to be next week's comment of the week, make sure to leave that comment. Anything else? Oh yeah. Congratulations. Giveaway. Congratulations. We got a winner. To we the, got a winner. The the giveaway winner. We yeah. are giving away well, we did the giveaway if you didn't it was, participate. Yeah. Um yeah. it was an in, on Instagram we gave away our very first piece of math and physics merch. Oh, T shirt, yep. the black logo looks awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah the winner Bages. I, I don't i don't know how to say the full name i don't want to butcher the pronunciation but you know i believe i believe she said it on one of the uh igs it was they just vinny and i believe i pronounced it right and she was happy mm. for that so oh, wow. hopefully i got that oh wow on right and again congratulations uh, obviously thank you to everyone who participated right this was just it was like a random uh giveaway i mean whoever was in there you know it was very sloppily done right but it was nice it was just a fun experience that we had so um it was nice so thank you to everyone who participated in the giveaway but coming up soon all right boom let's get all uh, right let's get into this podcast let's let's get into it let's max, start history of physics max Planck. let's start with him all right he was born in 1858 <laughs> in kiel kiel germany Okay, and I always love talking about the history of physics because, Mm -hmm. you know, history in general is just super fascinating. But I want to put everybody here in the mindset of of back in the day in the 1800s. So forget pretty much everything you learn about, you know, modern physics. Back in the day, it was just classical mechanics as well as uh, like the theory of electrodynamics by uh, Maxwell. And that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? There was, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, of course there was thermodynamics and all that stuff, but... Oh, like a lot of Newton and all that yeah, stuff. But at the time, you would just... People legitimately thought that there was nothing left to discover. They said, okay, we know like... 
how bodies move, right? Just like classically, classical mechanics and uh, how planets orbit. We know about the laws of thermodynamics, electrodynamics, all of that stuff. You know, what else is there to discover? We, <laughs> we're, like, quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, it turns out it's, <laughs> it's quite a lot. But yeah. if, you th if you think about it, they didn't have, of course, the technology that we have today. And so it makes sense, right? You, you can kind of explain everything that you do on a daily basis somewhat. So, yeah, you, when you go into physics, you, you just learn what, they're, what they have. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of tell you, well, this is all that there is to know. Because I guess at that time already, so much had already been done that yeah. they were like, okay, at this point, we're just learning. You know, like even school nowadays, yeah. you're not really discovering anything. You're just learning stuff that's already been done. Yeah. So there's no real curiosity. There's no real inquisitiveness, unfortunately, that's lost, which I guess, which is why they thought they're just done. Well, I, right. the, I forget who said this, but somebody said at the yeah. time that the only thing left in physics was to get more and more accuracy in the experiments, which, you know, due to quantum mechanics and all that stuff, we realized that there's actually a limit to how uh -huh. accurate you can get. But that, that was the mindset at the time, you know, we just need better tools, better measurements, and we can just, you know, move mm -hmm. on from there. But, yeah. oh yeah, I also wanted to say that there were some like loose ends in the physics world, but most people thought it was just a matter of like, not, not discovery, but just kind of tying those loose ends into the theories that they already had at the time. Cue in Max Planck, who mm -hmm. was just working in his corner of physics, right? He was dealing with a little bit of thermodynamics, some radiation, right? And turns out that there was actually a very big problem in the radiation world. So first of all, I know we've talked about this before, but let's just talk about black bodies. So a black body is something that uh, absorbs all of the electromagnetic radiation that is pointed towards it and also emits, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's called a black body because, not because it's black, but because uh, the color black, right, absorbs all the light as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, white that reflects. And it doesn't reflect, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't reflect anything. Exactly. exactly. So um, we have black bodies and there's something called black body radiation, which um, in theory, before Max Planck, well, technically the statement I'm about to say still applies, but so uh, a black body um, emits and absorbs all wavelengths of light or not just light, but, you know, electromagnetic radiation. <clears throat> Sorry. And essentially what they had at the time was that this radiation, of course, can be plotted as a spectrum. The issue was that at very short wavelengths, so high frequency, high energy radiation, the graph just blows up. And so essentially what you would think of course this wasn't true but 
from by looking at the electromagnetic spectrum or sorry the the emission spectrum you would think that a black body would just instantly release all of its energy and its temperature would go to absolute zero instantly because of this like infinite energy emission mm-hmm. of course this is not true so this was called the ultraviolet catastrophe Ooh. because you know there there's just this huge hole where it's like of course of course this is not what happens there's not there's not infinite energy this is just not possible mm-hmm. and so max planck was dealing in this area of physics and he well okay first of all let me just say that the the what am i trying to say here the the emission spectrum was actually derived from the second law of thermodynamics and uh max planck tried to do the same thing and still come up with a reasonable solution that actually fit Mm -hmm. the data because we had the data they were able to collect um, the emission spectrums of black bodies and they saw that it did not coincide with what they had theoretically. So they knew what the curve looked like and it kind of looked like a, a bell curve that was skewed a little bit over to the left side. Like a skewed normal distribution, yeah. So Max Planck actually decided to postulate or just assume in his mm-hmm. derivation of this spectrum, he assumed that electromagnetic radiation could only be absorbed and emitted in <laughs> quantized energy packets. What a what a what a ridiculous assumption. How do you even think of that? It, you know just random. I, you <laughs> it, it, it's it's so out of the box. Nowadays, with everything that we have, we look back and we're like, okay, makes sense. Well, obviously. I hate how people say that. Well, obviously it's this. Well, not to them. (laughs) It was really not that obvious, man. It was really not that obvious. So he assumed that they're called quanta, these energy packets, um, was true for any material. And this Mm -hmm. has a lot to do with... um, you know, when you heat up an object mm-hmm. and it glows at a certain uh, color. Yeah. The assumption that uh, of, of quanta, energy quanta, has a lot to do with that. And I guess we can come mm-hmm. back to it in a, in a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the whole black body radiation spectrum relies on thermal thermal radiation, right? Like that's how mm-hmm. every body, like even we emit radiation, just that we emit it in the infrared. Because all of our particles are technically vibrating, right? Which is how we get to a certain temperature. If if we were just completely stationary, we would be at absolute zero, which would make no sense, obviously. <laughs> so we're all vibrating at a certain temperature. And because of the fact that we are at that temperature, we give off a certain radiation. And that was described. Maybe you can continue with Planck's law and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So right. the, this idea, this assumption is actually what triggered the entire quantum revolution because of course you publish this idea this assumption and people go nuts you know they say well you you can't just assume things Mm. without proof but um i did a little bit of research of course before the podcast 
And <laughs> this was actually just by intuition that Max Planck did this. He oh, said, really? He he said Damn, if he said if I assume this, I can actually derive an equation that perfectly describes the black body spectrum. And so he said, well, maybe there's some truth to this lucky guess. And he stuck to it. Of course, if if assuming something that, you know, can't be proven wrong at the time, mm-hmm. you, if, if somebody says, OK, you can only have these quantized packets of energy, you can't really say, well, OK, here's here's a microscope. You can see that this is not true. Mm-hmm. You can't. And by assuming that it actually perfectly describes the exact problem that you're trying to tackle. And so he ran with it and he stuck to it and make per in his equations and, and everything he was doing at the time, it made perfect sense. And it actually ended up explaining a lot of the holes that there were in physics, but little did he know that the holes that he was trying to fill would just tear apart (laughs) everything, (laughs) everything that they knew. That we knew about physics. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my. So let's stop he, it there before you want to go any deeper yeah, yeah. Or, or, do you, or do you or do you want to talk more about him? No, I I, I did actually. <laughs> okay, so, continue. Um Max Planck was considered the grandfather of quantum theory. And his solution that he came up with was actually in the 1900s. Okay. And this discovery of the of the quanta actually earned him the Nobel Prize in physics in 1918 okay here's something that's interesting the the discovery of these energy quanta actually explains it's kind of the backbone of einstein's nobel prize Mm -hmm. winning uh experiment the photoelectric effect Mm -hmm. but einstein's hypothesis of the light quanta which is actually known today as photons, the force-carrying particle of the electromagnetic force. Mm -hmm. Um, It was actually rejected initially by Planck because let's remember, I guess I I never even stated this, but Planck was a very traditional guy. He was not here to shake up the game shake up the entire physics world he believed well he you know it's not a matter of believing but he really stuck to the things that they had at the time like maxwell's theory of electrodynamics and in that theory you know light is an electromagnetic wave and so he was he was a wave guy you know what I mean? And so when when sure. Einstein came along and said, you know, light is actually a particle, a photon, and, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand with Maxwell's ideas that energy can only be exchanged in quantized packets. Mm-hmm. He was he was unwilling to just to just throw away Maxwell's ideas. And here's a quote. He said that the theory of light would be thrown back not by decades but by centuries into the age of Christian Huygens, when he dared to fight against the mighty emission theory of Isaac Newton. Remember, guys, back in the day, Isaac Newton 
proposed that light was a particle. And Christian Huygens was one of the guys who said, no, I think it's a wave. He had a lot to do with the double slit experiment, which is pretty good evidence that light is a wave. Today, we know that it's a little bit of both. But when you have these great scientists debating over these <coughs> ideas, um, of course, the most popular scientist is going to win. Um, For sure. At the time of max planck he's like okay well maxwell kind of hit the nail right on the head there's no way i'm going to throw away my ideas about light and just go back <laughs> all the way all the way into the the 16 1700s mm -hmm. where they were debating the same topic and, and then the whole wave particle came later right yeah yeah this was yeah, the, yeah. the wave particle was was just a little bit after actually Max Planck would have been alive for for the wave particle um totally yeah kind right? of uh, merging of the two mm, ideas interesting and here's one last quote that i have why not he says and this is a very popular quote he says that a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it Oh my. And it's it's such a good quote because think about this. You believe something. You hold it very close to your heart. There's no way that somebody's going to come in and say, you know what? You're wrong. And you just go, oh, okay. All right. And, you know, maybe there are some, there are some cases where uh, scientists do convert their ideas but exactly what Max Planck said what happens is that time takes over you know it doesn't matter who thinks what is right it's just eventually those people will die the new generation mm -hmm. will take over with you know fresh blank canvases and the correct ideas or the, the seemingly correct ideas for that generation will just triumph. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, time definitely plays uh, an integral role in all of this. Like, who knows? I mean, Einstein, I mean, not Einstein, uh, Newton, for example, still like four or 500 years later, like 400 years later, we're still using a lot of yeah, his philosophies, yeah. right? So who knows? I mean, if, because Planck's radiation, Planck, he's saying Planck, Planck's radiation law and stuff like that, maybe we can dive a little deeper into it later, but a lot of that, you know, can be, similar to you know newtonian mechanics that kind of lives on forever because these black bodies are not going to stop living right everything is basically not a perfect but everything is basically a refined black body so mm -hmm. you can think about it that way so it applies to almost everything right so who knows maybe maybe plunk becomes the name of the yeah. you never know right i mean he's already yeah he's valid, already up valid, there you know already <laughs> very very well known valid. um but moving on yeah, or unless you have ahead. anything to say about Planck. You good? All right. Let's move on to Alan yeah, Turing. Alan Turing was a British mathematician, cryptographer, computer scientist. Well, when computers weren't even a thing back then. And he basically invented the modern day computer. And he basically invented the idea of artificial intelligence. 
And he was also an integral part in winning the Second World War, right? Or the whole the whole thing that took place. For those of you that have seen the imitation game, you may know a little bit about who Alan Turing is. And I'm going to mention how funny that is because the movie is named after something completely different that he has done. <laughs> and it's just nothing about the actual movie itself. Anyways, we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, so he's done some pretty notable things in his life, right? So first off, like he graduated from Cambridge, mathematics degree. I think like he knew he wanted to do mathematics from the get-go itself. Huge fan of cryptography. And uh, then he graduated Princeton, PhD in mathematics itself. And I believe a lot of people like close to him and, you know, like, you know, you always read these autobiographies or not, auto, but like biographies and stuff like that. And a lot of people said that he's kind of that very awkward person, likes to be by himself, like to do, like kind of likes that. And again, if you see the movie, I think a lot of this will make sense. It's kind of nice how they portray his personal life in that movie. And it's kind of realistic. But anyways, let's talk about his actual contributions, right? That's what's most important. So the first, okay, I, I, no, this is definitely chronological, right? Yeah. So. The uh, I'm just going to list like the three biggest things that he's done. Number one, the Turing machine. The Turing machine is basically what we call the computer. The modern day computer is based on the fundamental logic developed by the Turing machine. The second thing that he's done very notably in the Second World War itself is crack the Enigma machine. Now the Enigma or the Enigma code or whatever it was called was basically the Germans... Um, encryption machine way to send code between different locations so what they would do is they would type in a code it would send it to another enigma machine by morse code and then it would decrypt it on the other machine now obviously the thing is this was the most crazy thing to crack right this had been like uncrackable there there's like a crazy number of combinations to try to actually crack it and the craziest thing Every day, the whole thing resets. The whole actual encryption resets. So there's a new page every single day. And again, like I'm just thinking about the movie as I'm saying this because the movie is a lot about based on this. So whoever's watched it, you will notice a lot of things that I'm saying very similar to what he's doing. And, you know, every day, day after day, like they're staying up and boom, the bell rings and they couldn't figure it out. And there's a new code already. You know, so there's so that's like a big problem. And what Alan Turing did is that he made the machine called the BOMB, the B-O-M-B-E. Again, not, not, not quite sure the naming or the nomenclature behind it, but that basically cracked the Enigma machine. And I want to talk a little bit about that too, like really crazy achievement. And then finally, AI. This guy basically invented AI, man. <laughs> this guy basically invented the modern day understanding of artificial intelligence by something known as the Turing test. So before we get into anything let's talk about the modern day computer when we run a program on a computer what it's basically doing right and as we like and if anyone's taken like a basic computer science course or you know a lot of our listeners maybe some into tech so know that everything runs on binary code right everything is either a one or a zero everything can be represented in terms of a one or a zero and depending on how many or how much memory you have, you can store more ones and zeros or you can store less ones and zeros. And a program, and this is where he came up with the Turing machine, and this is exact a Turing machine. Imagine a tape, an infinite tape of ones and zeros. Now, obviously, this is a hypothetical idea, but 
obviously shorten the tape and you can make this a finite program. But just hear me out here with the logic. There's an infinite tape with ones and zeros. And there is, there's a, there's like a kind of a, like a read write head, you know, on the hard drives, like you have those read write heads. You can think mm -hmm. about it like that. And for every piece of tape, there is some code that basically tells this read write head what to do. So it'll go left. It'll replace that with something else. It can only do two things. It can either move left and right. Cause remember it's a one dimensional tape. It can move left and right, or it can change. It can read the information on the current cell, or it can change the information on the current cell. So it can change a zero to a one or a one to a zero. That's basically the idea. And every single program that we, you know, think of today can be broken down into a Turing machine, into a program that can be run on a Turing machine, right? Now, obviously, these are very simplistic examples to start, but let me give you the idea behind why would you even want something like this, right? This guy, I, I, I don't even know if I mentioned, he was born in 1912, so a little before the First World War. He was kind of, as I mentioned, big part of the Second World War. So, well, why does he even need this? So for hundreds of years, right, ever since like the 1700s or something like that, there were people called computers. And what they would do is they would sit and compute things. So their job in a lot of these, um, I guess not really companies or whatever they were really back then that needed to compute, I guess, for any research project or whatever, there would be people, and this is, again, back in the day, all women, that would be computers. They would literally be called computers. And on the job application, you could actually put down that you were a computer. And I really like that. And that's a little funny. Anyway, so that was the that was the traditional definition of the computer. And then Alan Turing thinks, hey, what if I can mechanize, mechanize, sorry, the process of computing? So instead of adding two numbers by hand you're adding it through some program real quick though just yeah. for just a little piece of information for of the course. history of computer science ada lovelace was a woman okay she was okay. the first person to publish an algorithm intended to be used on a computer and guess what this was before computers were even invented. Wait, when was this? When was this? What year was this? Uh, this was in the... Wait, I don't actually have the date. Okay, could just, just continue what exactly she did? That's all I had to say. Like, she, she wrote oh. an algorithm. That basically ran on be... the Turing machine? No, no, I don't know what they actually... Like, it, it worked. I don't know what they ran it on, but... It was probably the Turing machine. The first computer the algorithm first is what you're trying to say, though. Yeah, I'm saying the very first... was written by... A, okay, amazing. It was, it, was amazing. Written, it was written by a woman before computers. How do you... Yeah. <laughs> how do you... That's pretty intense. That's pretty intense. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, basically, this is... I mean, this is a modern-day computer, right? Like, just telling this read-writer head what to do is basically the definition of a modern-day computer. Yeah, and, this was in 1840, yeah. by the way. 1840? 1840? Okay, the Turing machine was made in 1936. Boom. I had it right there. 1936 is when the Turing machine was invented. So definitely a little bit later. 100%. Wait, so that means this was like... Oh, so the Enigma was actually... F 
Yeah. So the Enigma and the Turing machine were happening at the same time, which obviously makes sense. So that's basically the foundation of the Turing machine and a little bit of the computer. It's really cool that that lady had, you know, written the first programmable or program. But basically, if you think about it, adding two numbers can be thought of as a program. And that can be done on this, on this, on the sheet, on this, on this infinite tape. Now, obviously, that's a very simple program, but anything you really think of can be broken down into a Turing machine, right? And that is where I'm assuming the computer got its name from, right? Because it was computing things. That's basically <laughs> the whole thing, right? And it basically is just following these instructions, this code that was given to it in the first place, right? And it basically just goes by that and after it's done it either halts or it doesn't now here's the big thing now here's where it gets crazy i want to talk about a few things with alan Turing. he's really insane but i want to talk about let's talk about this first is there any problem that a computer cannot solve yes which was a you're saying yes there is a problem the computer cannot solve so a big part of after inventing this modern day programmable computer, quote unquote. Well, the question was very simple. Let me back it up actually a little bit. Let me back it up. Let me back it up. In 18, I'm missing the exact year, but some time ago, David Hilbert, very, very, very famous guy. He, I mean, he basically invented everything, like everything modern day mathematics. Was him. He was the king, the god of mathematics, basically. And he had these set of problems where he was trying to see if mathematics was a perfect model of the world. And he had a few problems here and there, and he's like, oh, if this is true, then mathematics. If this is true, if this is true. So he had these three, four problems, right? I believe it was three problems. And I believe like one or two were solved, one or two were disproved by a student, by Godel. A lot of people may, may recognize that name. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the decision problem that Hilbert posed. One of these fundamental questions about mathematics was very simple, or not very simple, but this was the question. Can we know, or can we determine, if every statement can be proven or disproven? Hmm. So, basically, what that easier way to say it is given enough time will we be able to determine if a given statement is true or false or not true or false is provable or disprovable that's the idea behind the decision problem alan turing comes in the picture he's like i'm gonna change up this wording a little bit to satisfy my definition of a computer so he says is there any program that can determine if said program will halt or not halt? Now, for those of you maybe not familiar with a lot of computer halt, not what does that mean? So, you know, when you write a piece of code while true, execute something and it just executes forever, it's an mm -hmm. infinite loop, that piece of code will not halt. That means that piece of code will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and will simply not loop. And something like this and the question was, well, if you give this to a Turing, if, if you give this to a Turing machine, it'll just continue to do something over and over and over and over again. That's it's not halting. Now, a program will halt. Obviously, the contrary example to this will be if the program actually does end up stopping. 
So that's your idea of halting and not halting. And Alan Turing had converted the decision problem. Now, he's also a mathematician, so don't only think that this is he's just doing this theoretically. This is very deeply integrated in mathematics. It's just that we're missing. I'm going to be skipping out a lot of that just to get to the understanding of what exactly he did. But hold on. Right? How are those two statements equivalent? Okay. So Hilbert asks again, can we know if a statement can be proved or disproved? And Turing asks, can we know if a program will stop? That means it has been executed. That means it was successful, quote, oh, proved, okay, or okay. not stopped, cannot be proved. I get, get it. That. Yeah. So that's basically the idea behind converting that to now what is known as the halting problem. And this is a very, very, very famous, very famous problem that let almost every single first or second year or any year's computer science student will be aware of, right? Or at least, or at least knows a little bit about. And this is how he phrases the problem. And this was his solution to the problem. Now, this is a little confusing, so bear with me. And Parker, you can be my witness there, like the first time hearing it, because I know I, I even told Parker, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to wait for the podcast. So you tell me your raw, you know, reaction. So before we continue into the crazy halting problem, I do want to bring up a very, how do I say this, uh, friendly program to us. Brilliant. <laughs> now, if you liked any of this computer science stuff that we were, that I was talking about in particular with logic and understanding basic computer science, the halting problem, the decision problem, logic, basics of that, you can go check out brilliant.org. It's a crazy website. It offers insane courses that basically talk about and teach you all of these varying concepts. Computer science, a little bit of quantum mechanics, that is a little advanced, but a little bit of that also included. And this month, they actually included new interactive courses with their logic courses, with their math courses. So you can actually like play around with it, actually like, you know, visually learn. So there's a big advantage. So go check out brilliant.org slash MPP to sign up. And the first 200 listeners to sign up a premium membership on brilliant.org using our code will get 20% off their membership. Wow. So go ahead, click that Great. link or type it brilliant.org slash MPP. Boom. Boom. That's it. So let's continue. A halting problem. So this is this is crazy, okay? This is this is going to be insane. So just everyone listening, everyone uh, like, you know, viewing, just chill. The halting problem. This was Alan Turing's answer to the decision problem. And he basically said, can every statement be proven? Or like, do we know if this can be true? And the answer is no. We don't know. And this is... Right? Yeah, exactly. We don't know. And this was his explanation. Take a program that can do two things. Think of, think of it like a function. It takes in a program and then it does something. Now, what it does is two things. Step one, it will check if the program halts or does not halt. So obviously for this, we assume that we can make a program that will determine if a given program would halt or not halt. So we are assuming the statement to be true. 
Valid? Valid, right? So we're assuming that this kind of machine can be made, and then we're going to take it from there. So let's say we can make such a program. So the first thing this program will do, it has two things it'll do. The first thing it'll do is check if the given program will halt or not halt. Very, very straightforward. Then, if it if the program will halt, it will spit out yes. And if it will not halt, it will spit out no. Now, here's the thing. The second thing it does is a little confusing. So again, just bear with my logic here. If the program halts, that means it stops, and it says yes, the second part of this program will loop infinitely. That means it will not halt. But if the given program does does halt, sorry, sorry, sorry. If the given program does not halt, that means the given program will loop infinitely. The secondary program will halt. So here's the program once again. Let me get, let me, let me make sure every, every, if this makes sense. It takes in a program. If that will loop infinitely, the second part of this program will stop. But if this program will not loop infinitely, the second part of this program will loop infinitely. And that's basically this whole program. Now, Turing said this. What if we put this whole program into itself? Oh. Follow the logic. Follow the logic. Oh. The program, let's say, does not halt. Right? That means it goes on infinitely. Right? It does not halt. Then the next part of the program will stop immediately. But then if it stops, that means it did halt. So this should go on uh, infinitely. But if it goes on infinitely, then this should not halt. Then this should stop. So wait, hold on. Does, does that make sense? Does, is it going to so like you, infinitely feed the program into no, itself? No, so the, the conclusion is that this is inherently a mathematical paradox. That you cannot make a program that can determine if said program will halt or not halt. Basically concluding that the decision problem was solved and is untrue. But wait, hold on. Why can't Ex you just... Ask your questions. <laughs> okay. Why can't you just say that the program that determines if, if a program will halt or not halt... Yeah. There's only one part to it, and it either says yes or no, and then there you go. There's your program. No, but you're trying to, <laughs> you're trying to <laughs> prove that statement, man. Come on. You're trying to prove <laughs> if that statement is true. You're try so you're, you're assuming that there is a program that exists like that, yeah. and you're trying to see, well, would that work? So what he did is he created a counterexample. He created, put the second instrument okay, right yeah, next yeah. to it, right, and do the exact opposite of what this guy does, basically. Yeah. And then send okay. that whole thing into it. itself. I get it. I get it. <laughs> right. So it's it's crazy. No, and yeah, this is that, basically this is basically how smart. he he answered the halting problem and the decision problem, which was one of his greatest feats. And again, it was it was it was it was massive because basically it proves that a computer cannot find the answer to every question, and that's a little scary if you think about it. But hold on, I have another question for you. Go for it. If you assume that it's true, mm. 
here's the problem. Okay, so the statement you're trying to prove is a there exists statement, right? Because you're trying to find one program that can determine, right? Well, no, 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 no. The statement is every. The statement is every program has a provable or disprovable solution. And we would know that. Can we determine that? No, 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 no. I, I'm saying Alan Turing's general... Counter-example was one program. Yeah, I mean, it was, no, no, it was give listen, this listen, whole program listen. into itself. Listen, his general yeah. idea was to show that, like, there exists one program that can, in fact, determine whether every program that you feed into it was uh gonna halt or not halt right so all he no, he to... said the opposite he said this there is this program that basically negates this statement no which means that's you cannot determine it. that every of these work but listen that's how he proved it was by assuming the assuming it's true showing a contradiction okay yeah but the 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 statement is every is true so even if you show one doesn't work you immediately contradict the statement but listen to what I'm saying, because because he proposed an well, this idea. This is a really famous thing. Are you really trying to argue no, 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 with me? Like no, no. I'm, I'm not really the best to, arguer I'm for this, but like this is like a big it. thing that he's done. I'm trying to. Understand <laughs> but yeah, continue. It. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because he proposed one example of a machine that can determine if it halts or doesn't halt. But what if there's another example of a machine that can do that? And okay, it doesn't contradict. Okay, okay. Let me let me put this again. Mathematical terms. You have a statement where every statement must be this. You prove there is one statement that does not do this. Is the statement not false? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's exactly it, right? But That's I still, exactly it. I don't know. I no, guess. I feel I get what you mean, but the point was that no, this cannot be done because again, you can find a counterexample which negates the whole every part. Of the statement. So hold and on. And again, this is a very, this is a very, very. I have skipped over so much math, obviously, because yeah. it's a lot. Like you know what I mean. So there's a lot of math that goes into this that I'm just explaining the theory behind. But believe me, like it does work out, and it's crazy, and it's freaking crazy. So, okay, wait, so no, no, no hold, wait, no. I think you yeah. said it wrong, though. What would I, I say? I think did the I statement, up? the statement is, for all programs there exists a solution stating whether it halts or does not halt, right? Is that not what I said? No. For all programs. So there's this, yeah, that's what I said. That for every program, we can determine if it halts or doesn't halt, which is, right? So, okay. <laughs> right? Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a little interesting. It's a little interesting. Yeah, definitely yeah. in the comments below if you want to add ask something like for sure. It's a definitely a very interesting problem. Yeah. And again, it just it just really shows you how some people just think just outside of the whole box, you know, like they're not even there. They're they're, they're not even there. Like so I just I just really like the way he describes it. And that's the halting problem. That's one of his really crazy things. Let's continue on to some of his other crazy things that he did. The Enigma machine. Now, this is something that he cracked in World War II. And big, big props to him. Because basically, he was able to successfully decipher the code sent from and to German uh, bases. Right? Which was a big thing. So, 
little history here. I think I already went through it, but a little more history. Uh, Germany basically used this machine for all of its, um, for all sending and receiving any kind of messages. It used to send it via Morse code, and then it used to decrypt it based on the machine. Now, their job in the best way possible, where Alan Turing was working, like with the British government, this was like a highly secretive job to the point where even after he broke it, literally 20 years after he died, like he had died and still nobody knew that he had done that. He couldn't say it because Whoa. it was under the official secrets act of Britain. So he couldn't even say anything. And 20 years after he died, he was actually then like, okay, he did this. So, I mean, it's, wow. it's, it's kind of it's sad, like the way it went. And he died for a really sad reason. I'm going to get into that. But anyways, let's, let's get into the enigma, right? So what he did is he, he was, again, a big, big, big fan of cryptography, right? Which is basically trying to decode and decipher a lot of these encrypted messages. So he made the machine, as I mentioned previously, called a bomb. And it's a pretty complicated machine, which basically, again, feeds in messages. And it tries to decipher something. The problem with this machine, again, for those of you who have seen the movie, for a long amount of time, it just wouldn't stop. It would continue going forever and ever and ever because it would take so long to decode the message. However, and again, this is also in the movie. I'm just remembering the whole movie as I'm saying this. But then one day, they thought, hey, a lot of these messages have similar words. Like every 11 a.m., every, every day at 11 a.m., the Germans would say the weather report. So it would have the weather, it would have the word is, it would have one, depending on the time, stuff like that. And they also noticed that every letter that they would write was written as a word and not as a letter. So that also gave them combinations to look for, mm -hmm. especially with, with given times of the day, they would look for different combinations. And eventually they cracked the Enigma machine using Turing's machine. And it was crazy because they were basically going to like shut down the project, like defund it. He was going to be kicked out and then he got back on. It was this whole thing. And then basically it finally worked. And it was super, super cool and super sad because he wasn't really, this was one of his biggest accomplishments and it wasn't even known, right? Until he had died like 20 years later. And the saddest thing, the saddest thing, so he was an openly homosexual man and obviously at that time, it was not very, very, very nice. I believe there was a, he was charged by the court for indecent acts or something, like some, some crazy like that. And he actually committed suicide because of the amount of hate and stuff that Whoa. he was you know, receiving. And there are some theories that it's not suicide, accidental stuff like that. But it was like, I think I was some cyanide poisoning. So it was, it's closely linked to that. Anyways, really sad stuff on Turing's side for why he passed away. Just not the best time for him to live in. But clearly, I mean, he improved it by a lot. Enigma machine, you know, this, is, this, guy, this guy broke it. So that's really cool. That was his second accomplishment I wanted to talk about. And then finally, finally, I want to talk about AI, right? His mm. final paper, or not final, but his, his most notorious final paper. In 1950, he released a paper on computations where he posed this thing called the Turing test or the imitation game. You see that? Mm, so mm -hmm. this is a completely different thing. So the imitation <laughs> game is actually something based on the Turing test, which has nothing to do with him solving the Enigma machine. So again, it's just weird. It's weirdly named. Anyways, so what is the imitation game? Now, this is really cool. Listen up. Imitation game is simple. There are three rooms. One of them has a computer. 
One of them has a person. One of them has a judge who is also a human. Right? So there are two humans, one computer, both the humans. Well, there's one human and there's one judge who's basically judging this whole scenario. And they're all in different rooms. Here's the test. Everything is done by text, right? Because they're in different rooms, right? So you're, you're basically typing everything. And the question is simple. After a five-minute period, can the, or any amount of period, the, 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 the game was for five minutes, can the judge tell, accurately tell the difference between the computer and the human? Huh. That was the test. That but, was the imitation game. Wait, hold on, but... Basically, what, what kind of com- the- mm-hmm. like what kind of computer are we talking about? So obviously, the idea is if a given computer can pass the Turing test, we can call it intelligent. Okay. And that was his whole introduction of artificial intelligence into the world today, right? But now let me tell you a little bit of the controversy. There is a little bit of a controversy with this, right? There's a lot of it because what kind of questions can the judge ask? Is it just yes or no questions? Because then can she ask mathematical questions? Then obviously Mm. the human would be stumped. So what kind? And then there was the whole debate on, well, what, what is intelligence? How are we defining intelligence? So he said a very simple answer. There's some amount of behavior that humans do that are not intelligent quite a lot these days and there's some amount of behavior that humans don't do that are very intelligent the middle ground is where you want to test them and that was the idea of the Turing test now because it's so vague and so eh, it could be this could be that any question that you really want because it's so vague there wasn't there can't really be too much backlash, right? Because it's such a vague thing to do. It's nothing like that's exact. It's just, hey, ask your questions. And after five minutes, if 70% of the time you can determine, you cannot determine the difference between them, that computer has passed the Turing test. Hmm. And I believe till date there have been, I think like one or two off chances, but I, I don't believe any computer has successfully fully passed the Turing test. But again, it's all about what, and, and now modern day researchers kind of negate this. They're like, that's not really what we're going towards anymore because do we really want to make a computer like a human? No, we want to make it better than a human. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to compare. So that was his idea. But again, the, the fundamentals of Alan Turing creating that idea of intelligence, the very first idea of computer intelligence and comparing them, that's mm-hmm. what's essential. And know? a great video that I recommend yeah. everybody to go listen to. I guess I'll link it in the description. Um, it's by Cold Fusion on YouTube, and it's about GPT-3. Do you know about GPT-3? I've heard of that abbreviation somewhere. It's uh, essentially, it's like a virtual machine, I think, that's artificially intelligent. And yeah, apparently, like apparently, it's the most advanced, like, artificial intelligent thing that is like i think it's not yet public domain or whatever but it's like some people were able to test it and everything and there are so many things you can do so many things one example is that you can give it any topic and it will spit out an essay on that topic really that's like Damn. Like high level, high That's like nice. intelligence, like very well 
formulated and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Like, listen, the, the, if if high school students get a hold of this machine, <laughs> then it's it's over. You know what I mean? Like, oh, write an essay on uh, Shakespeare. You know, they have just like, like use all the knowledge ever because yeah. <laughs> he's access to the Internet. The Internet in these days yeah. is ins- like it's insane. It's insane. Like like you see those movies about your div- your your robot, you know, connected to the Internet and hacks all your devices. To be honest, that's totally possible. Like that's completely possible given a sufficiently good programmer has programmed that particular device. Yeah. Like you hear so many times about people getting hacked and it's not even crazy to assume so on the same Wi-Fi network if everyone's there. Anyways, I'm just giving like hypotheticals. But let me give you an example of a Turing machine or 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 not a, sorry, not a Turing machine, but machines that are trying to get the Turing test passed. In 2018 or 2019, 2018, I believe, it was Google had a um a an event where they premiered for the very first time Google Duplex. And what Google Duplex did in front of 7,000 people live is booked a haircut appointment. Oh, I remember that. You remember that, right? I yeah. think a lot of people remember this one. This is very. This went viral when this happened. Yeah. A, a computer perfectly booked a haircut appointment. With, there was, I believe there was a little bit of, there was a language barrier in that particular conversation. There was a little if, and there was, there was a little back and forth, but it continued that conversation. Now, obviously, we're not there but that's the idea of where we're going. Just giving you an example of different machines that are trying to ca- copy it, or at least not copy, but trying to pass that test. Mm. Let me give you another example. CAPTCHA. Now, CAPTCHA is actually a reverse Turing test. Because if you think about it, CAPTCHA is a computer trying to tell if a human is actually a human. Right? In a Turing test, it's the human telling the computer if the computer's human. So you know what I mean? So this is the other, so a CAPTCHA is the opposite. And what does it stand for? I have it right here. It's kind of funny. Completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. That's CAPTCHA. That's basically what CAPTCHA stands for, right? And it, by definition, is a reverse Turing test. So basically, you know, different machines, different automations, different programs like that are kind of on its way to reach that level. And artificial intelligence, you know, is always a question about when we're going to reach that. But these are just, you know, some of his... I think these are just insane. I mean, every time we go through a history of physics... I believe, I think me and I believe Parker as well, just have an amazing realization about, you know, the amount of work, the amount of difficulty, the amount of struggle that some of these guys had to go through to get the basic knowledge that's in our head. The basic, basic knowledge that we know about computer programs. Like how easy is it to Mm -hmm. write hello world, print hello world for those computer science nerds. It's a big joke there, but so simple. But not in not, not in 1920, <laughs> not in 1930, right? It was yeah. it was the craziest thing if you could do something like that, even close, remotely, like mi- mir- mirroring a computer or a human computer at that time was I mean, amazing. That's why science evolves and continues. It's so amazing right? how it does as well. Really appreciating how it evolves and what it evolves into, and that's what I'm. We should really appreciate the knowledge in our head, man. I'm telling you, we don't. A lot of us don't do that. We're like, oh, this is Newton's laws of gravity. So simple. You know, who doesn't know this? But we learn about uh, quantum mechanics in grade 12. (laughs) Like who (laughs) even? uh, Yeah. Like who even? Einstein took like 10 years to figure out general relative, like the concepts of general relativity. 
and it's explained, you know, in, like concisely in a, in a couple of years, two to three years, you're already fluent with general relativity and more general relativity and more. So it's amazing the level at which mm-hmm. we've come today, all because of, you know, the sacrifices, the work that all of these people have done in the past. And that really for gives sure. you a true appreciation for science, for physics, hence the history of physics. So yeah, let us know in the comments or on Instagram at math.physics.podcast who we mm-hmm. should do next on the history oh, of physics. Oh, someone I remember, I have seen your comment. If you're listening to this episode, the one who replied or commented and a lot of people liked on the fact that we wanted to do a magnetism episode, the part two to the electricity episode. Mm-hmm. It's coming, but I don't hold off on it. It's coming. It's going to yeah. come, of course, 100%. But just... Because sometimes, you know, we need to give a little bit of a break. We have a, we have some ideas. We have some different topics to go through. So we're just trying to give a little bit of a break between the electricity and the magnetism, you know, to really entice For sure. entice those guys. So that's that's basically the idea. So hopefully just stay, stay tuned and it'll come on. For mm-hmm. sure. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah. Uh, make sure to follow wherever you're listening to us. Go over to YouTube, leave a comment, maybe subscribe maybe for sure subscribe who knows hit that like button though why don't like just (laughs) smash that like button check out our clips we have clips i know our schedule has been really messed up lately we've been having like a whole revamp of who's doing it and who's doing what so there's been a little bit of a problem with the clips lately hope i know some of you guys are understanding i posted it on the story the other day a lot of you responded so thank you for that and yeah just bear with us a little bit in the coming weeks but yeah we're gonna get back on for sure Already. Oh, and the crazy news. One month, Parker and I moving in together. Oh, yeah. I think we so mentioned like four that. four or five episodes. Oh, we, no, we, we didn't. We definitely mentioned that. We mentioned it on the live. Yeah, but, uh, I think. Oh, yes. So yeah. for those that are listening to the podcast, Parker and I are going to be moving in together next week. Or, I mean, next month, downtown Toronto, obviously, because U of T. So every episode is going to be like, a, well, we're going to be together. So that's going to be really cool. Yeah. So it's going to kind of change change our podcast a little bit for the better so very excited for that Mm -hmm. all right well thank you for listening i don't think so no this has been uh episode number 72 of the math and physics podcast i'm your host parker and i'm ray we will see you soon bye guys